Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Today's episode is What's Your Script? According to Hebrew Bible expert Walter Brueggemann, all of us live by a script. He contends that our society is constantly scripting us with technological, therapeutic, consumer militarism. In the words of the Apostle Paul, we must fight this tendency by refusing to conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The gospel message itself offers us a whole new script. It's hopeful rather than pessimistic, motivated by love rather than fear, characterized by abundance rather than scarcity. It provides us an anchor to weather the storms of this life. It gives us lasting purpose and makes sense of morals. Ultimately, we all have to choose what kind of script we will live by. We are privileged and commissioned to give the world a foretaste of the kingdom through our actions and words, by modeling a new way of doing relationships, by performing outrageous acts of cross-shaped love to a world that is numb, consumeristic, obsessed with sexuality, terrified of extinction, and generally over-busy, underpaid, and bored. We offer the world a new script. We are the people of God who have a prophetic message to deliver, a message of hope and forgiveness, a message of value and purpose, a message of freedom about a God who is dedicated to fixing up this old place and who will one day send his son to make everything wrong with the world right, a God who sends us now to reflect that beauty into the present. The title of my teaching is, What's Your Script? That probably doesn't make a lot of sense right now, but hopefully at the end it'll come together, but we're not talking about handwriting style, (laughs) but we're talking about the gospel, and so what what I'd like to do is share with you the gospel as I understand it, so it's my hope that this is exceedingly familiar to all of you, (laughs) being that we're Christians gathering together on a Sunday morning to worship our God in light of the gospel, but... I just thought it would be an appropriate thing to do today to share with you the message that, as I understand it, at least today, you know, as God reveals more, maybe a little more emphasis here or there or something like that. But um, this is where I'm at right now. And so I'd like to share with you the good news. Uh, I want to talk to you about the kingdom of God and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to start with. These are, these are all big topics, you understand, that you know, the Bible spends like a lot of time describing. So when I practiced this teaching earlier this morning, it ended up being 20 minutes over time. So I'm going to go a little faster. And we can't read all these verses. That's really the downside. But I've got them for you in the program if you uh, want to look them up later. But to start with, I want to talk about the kingdom. And so please turn to Isaiah chapter 2. The Bible begins with these famous words, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And in the creation story it says, Good, seven times over. As God's creating things, it says, Good, good, good. 
good, good, good. And then he looked at everything and it was very good, right? Tov meo, very good. And so the idea is that God made a good world and he's a good God. And he put his royal king and queen in that world to reign over it, to have dominion, to steward and care for his creation that he had given them the authority to rule over. Of course, we know what happens next, right? There's that bit about the serpent, you know. And so things have gotten messed up. But the original plan was that this good world that our good God made would be ruled over by good people in loving relationship with him and with each other. That was the original plan. And the thing about our God is that he's so powerful that when something breaks, he doesn't have to throw it away. He's so brilliant that when something breaks, he doesn't have to call a repairman to fix it. You know what I mean? He is a very capable God, and therefore he's decided to fix creation from within, using these broken people to bring about the plan of redemption, culminating in in Jesus Christ, of course. But the first one of these men is Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, very early on, only 12 chapters into the whole Bible. And God calls Abraham out of the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, modern-day Iraq. He's an idol worshiper, and he gives him all these blessings, in effect, starting the process of reversing the curses. What's wrong with the world? Well, men are cursed. Right, ladies? You notice that? (laughs) Women are cursed, right, men? And Satan's cursed. You know, I mean, that's what's wrong with the world, if you want to get it right. And on behalf of men who are the ones who work the soil and so on, the ground's cursed, too. So... There's a lot of curses, and that's what's wrong with the world. And so the process of blessing begins with Abraham, where God begins to undo this process. And so the kingdom idea is there in Genesis chapter 1. And it's there in Genesis chapter 12, when God promises the land to Abraham. And it continues. And once the people enter the land, and they have a king over them, David, who is the greatest king that Israel has ever had, and... This wonderful promise is made to him that I'd love to read with you, but like I said, we are limited. So the promise is that of your descendants, God will raise up one to sit on the throne, and he will rule over God's kingdom forever. And the idea is that one day, somebody's going to have a baby, a descendant of David, a royal heir, and that child's going to grow up, and God's going to confer on that child the kingdom of David forever. And that's kind of different than all the other kings, because they all die. So this one king that doesn't die and who lasts forever is what we're looking for. And then we have these prophets, and there are prophets that are there during the time when Israel is ruled by its own kings, and Isaiah is one of these prophets. We're in chapter 2 of Isaiah right now, and I'd just like to read it to you. Isaiah 2.2 says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of Yahweh from Jerusalem And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation will not lift up nation. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. This is filling out for us this kingdom idea. And part of the kingdom idea is not just Israel being blessed by God, the direct descendants of Abraham, but all the nations coming to a point where they are humble enough to go to God's instruction, which emanates forth from Zion, from Jerusalem, when the Messiah comes. And this instruction will teach them how to walk in the path of God so that they don't have to, you know what nations do, you know, they conquer each other and kill each other off and all that. You know, they don't have to do that sort of stuff anymore. And it will be so permanent that they won't even need their weapons of war anymore. They're just, they would just be like wasting space. So they would melt them down, turn the tractors into tanks. Don't you think a tractor would make a fine tank? I mean, a I'll reverse that. Don't you think a tank would make a fine tractor? Right? Because, I mean, it can seriously pull stuff, and it works in the mud and everything else. So I think that would be fun. And the idea is that not only are they going to get rid of all the weapons, but even the military academies are going to be closed. Why do you need military academies? They will study war no more. It's pointless. What's the point in studying war if the kingdom's here? You know? And so this is the vision. It's not just for Israel. It's for all the nations that they would learn to walk in God's ways. Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35, verse 4. And you get these little windows in the prophets. And I love them. Isaiah is just loaded with them. We could stop and look at Isaiah 9 and then look at Isaiah 11 and then 25. You know, and see all these little windows. But we're going to look at 35, verse 4. Say to those with an anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer. Then the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And the haunt of jackals, its resting place, grass becomes reeds and rushes. And so the idea is that what's, what else is wrong with the world? Well, th- there are these wicked people that somehow or other get into positions of authority, and then oppress other people, and there's lots that suffer as a result of that. Have you ever noticed that? Yeah, I've noticed that too. And so these wicked people, the way that you solve that problem is you read verse 4, to those of us who are suffering, or especially in other countries where the government has anti-conversion laws, and you cannot preach Christianity or else they'll cut your head off, literally, um, and, and so on. We're in contact with some of these people. It's not just, you know, theoretical. He says to them, take courage, fear not. Why don't we have to fear? Because your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come. But he will save you. So although he is pouring out his wrath on the wicked who oppress everyone else, it's the salvation to everyone else is being oppressed. To those who are under their thumb, they're set free. A new sheriff is coming. Amen. But it's not just that. It's not just the wicked that are taken out of the way. If you have a physical or mental infirmity, 
He is going to fix that too. We're talking about a comprehensive program for solving the world's problems, the kingdom of God. The blind, I love when it says the lame will leap like a deer. It makes me think like they're going to have super legs or something, you know, because they couldn't walk the rest of the time. So now they're, you know, oh, he was lame. Oh, I could tell, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It could be metaphoric or whatever. I'm sure a lame person wouldn't really care that much, you know, so as long as you can walk. And uh, that is just the plan of our God to fix everything that's wrong with the world. And do you know what else is wrong with the world? Places like the Sahara Desert. Has that ever bothered you when they show you the map and how it's growing and increasing? I mean, it's not really, to Americans, to us, it's not that big of an issue. But if you're living in a Saharan country and, like, it keeps expanding and you have to keep moving, that's a problem. And these deserts, they're doing this. And so, did you catch that in verse 7? The scorched land will become a pool of the thirsty ground, springs of water. God's going to regenerate even... The uh, deserts of the world have springs pop up in the middle of them and have grass grow there. A, 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 a Sahara desert would make a great field, wouldn't you think? <laughs> you know, or, or some place to have springs and so on. And so God's plan is to rescue the world. And what he does is he rescues us in anticipation of that. And that's how we get to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus. There's lots more we can say about the kingdom of God. Um, from Daniel, it talks about how when the kingdom comes, it's like a stone, and it's going to crush all the other kingdoms, and it itself will last forever. In Zechariah 14, it talks about how God is going to be finally given His just due, and He won't have competitors like the pantheon of gods that are worshipped in these days. But then it says, Yahweh's name will be one, and they will worship Him. And when John the Baptist erupts onto the scene in the beginning of the Gospels, he is proclaiming this message of repentance in light of the kingdom of God. And Jesus goes to him for baptism, which signifies to me that he agreed with John's message that the kingdom was the heart of the Gospel and that people need to repent in light of that. And so Jesus goes forth and he proclaims the Gospel. Let's go to Luke chapter 4. But Jesus is slightly different than John because John, John would preach repentance, he would preach the kingdom, and he would, a lot of people responded to John's ministry. But Jesus enacted the kingdom in fresh ways that sort of blew you away. So like if you went to Jesus and you had blindness, he would just heal you. I mean, he wouldn't, he wouldn't like conjure up spirits, he would just heal you. He wouldn't even have to hit you in the head. He would just heal you. You know what I mean? And if you were lame, he would just say, look, man, stand up. And you would stand up. You see what I'm saying? Like, he healed everybody. So he had lots of lines. When you see that when Jesus goes to a town, he'll be at somebody's house. There'll be a long line of people. And they're the sorriest bunch of people you ever saw. You know what I mean? This guy's lame. This guy's blind. This one's just got a demon of some sort out of his tree, right? Um, and they all come to Jesus, and the line walking away from Jesus is just like, feeling good, right? And, or, or maybe they stayed and they listened to what he had to say. Because Jesus preached the message, Jesus lived the message, and Jesus enacted the message in these awesome and fresh ways. He would cast out demons. He would set the oppressed free. He would, he would do these radical acts of kindness to the least deserving people. He would take the outcasts of society, the scum of society, and he would embrace them, and he would, and he would 
give them a shot at being in the kingdom of God by preaching to them as well. And he would hug a leper. You know, that's... I'm not there yet. You know what I mean? Like, hugging... You know, you get leprosy if you hug a leper, usually. So, I mean, that's... Well, it depends on what kind of leprosy, I suppose. And he would embrace the prostitutes and even the IRS he would include in his dinner parties, the tax collectors, right? And the, he would even have dinner with the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were persecuting him. He'd still have, and he'd still preach to them. You know, he preached to everybody. And he was very, very much a man ahead of his time as far as this sort of acts of compassion go. In fact, he offended a lot of people. In his parables, he would say, the kingdom of God is like a man who threw seed on the ground. Or the kingdom of God is like somebody that went fishing and caught a whole bunch of fish. And, separate, you know. and each of these parables shows us the different facets of the kingdom of God and how we do respond to it. And in his massive sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to he not only preached the gospel, but he taught us how to live as gospel people. What does it mean to live? Because Christianity is not only a set of beliefs. It is a way of life. And if we reduce it to a set of beliefs, then we have become the same as the Pharisees who criticized others who didn't share their tradition of belief and do things the way they did them. We need to do it as a way of life as well. And so in Luke 4.43, we'll start in verse 42. Jesus has been healing some people. They're very excited. They want Him to stay. And He wakes up early. Verse 42. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. Crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. This was the purpose of Jesus, to declare this gospel of the kingdom. And we know that he called 12 disciples, and he promised to them that you 12 will sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And, of course, Jesus will be the Messiah. He'll be ruling over all. And as time went on, he conflicted with the powers that be, the governmental powers of his time. And as a result, we have the crucifixion. And I wanted to read some verses to you from 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's all go there. 1 Peter chapter 2, about what the crucifixion means. But I'll tell you one thing. Looking at the crucifixion, it, it was just a horrible sight. It was just horrible. It was tragic to see somebody mutilated and dying slowly on a piece of wood like that. You know, it's just a horrible, tragic sight. And the sign above his head read, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And there he was dying. You know, the sign is intended to make, a fu- make fun of him, to be an ironic, sort of like last insult, the reproach that he would bear. Of course, the people were like, oh, you know, poor man, he's dying. You know, he's not like the criminals next to him. You know, we should just be nice. No. They threw insults at him, too. They said, if you're the Messiah, come down from there. Right? So the cross was a horrible, tragic thing. But somehow or other, in the mysterious, mysterious way of God, he chose that as the means by which to redeem the world. Which is just mind-blowing, right? I mean... That horrible, ugly sight of suffering and agony, to us, is salvation. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 21, it says, For it would 
Oh, that's the wrong Peter. First Peter, chapter two, verse twenty-one. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. So the cross, the crucifixion, is not only for our sins. It's not only the case that Jesus, as the sacrifice of the new covenant, died so that our sins could be expiated, taken away, and cleansed from us. But it's also that Jesus' crucifixion is something that shows us how to suffer. It shows us the way of Jesus. It shows us how to be like Jesus. And so you notice that in verse 21. You've been called to this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. When we suffer, what do we do normally? We sin, right? If you're suffering, that's the prime time to sin. That's the time to lash back. That's when the, uh, the, the words of Brother James, the apostle, come out, you know, the tongue is like a fire. Who can tame it, right? That's when it comes out, right? When we're suffering, when we're frustrated, when we're going through hard times. But this scripture says, even if you're a slave and your master's cruel, be like Jesus. Be like Jesus. Suffer in a way that is like the cross. Don't lash back. Do not sin. Who committed no sin, verse 22. Didn't revile back, verse 23. And trusted himself to God who is going to judge that evil master. In verse 24, he bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin. The cross is not just to take away our sins so that we can be forgiven and therefore enabled to live however we want. That's, that's a perversion. That's a gross perversion. The cross, he bore our sins so that we would also die to sin. So that we would die to sin. So that sin would be killed. Not just for him, but for all of us. And that we would live to righteousness. So the cross is forgiveness of sin. It's also enabling us to not sin anymore. And it's, last of all, this way of life that Jesus, by looking at the cross, we see what it means to be a Christian. And that's, at once, a very scary thought because there's a lot of suffering involved in that, isn't there? But yet, that's to what we've been called according to verse 21. Then we look at the resurrection. The best part, right? The resurrection. And when the resurrection happens, everything is turned upside down. That sign that says, oh, this is the Messiah. You know, look, at, look how pathetic he is. He's dying. What, a, what a, a fake Messiah or false Messiah. Now that sign is like a plaque. <laughs> this is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The King of the Jews was a Roman way of saying the Messiah. Jewish way of saying it would be the Son of God or the Messiah. And so the resurrection flips everything on its head. The befuddled disciples who are, you know, I was thinking, what kind of songs were they singing during those three days after Jesus died? I was thinking, you know, like, they were probably singing songs like, you know, you were forsaken so I could be forgiven, you know, or, you know, these cross songs we sing, you know, what's another one of those songs? The Wondrous Cross, you know, they're probably singing. Then I'm thinking, they thought he was dead, period. You know, that's it. They're not singing those songs. They're singing, I can't believe I fell for this guy. 
he seemed so genuine, you know, but obviously he was a false messiah. He's dead. Or they're singing songs like, God, how could you let your messiah die? This doesn't fit. This doesn't make any sense. They're songs of agony. They're dirges. They're funeral songs. They're laments like the book of Lamentations. And then the resurrection happened. And when the resurrection happened, now we get all that beautiful up from the grave. (laughs) We get all that kind of music, don't we? Because God raised him from the dead and God healed all of those wounds, brought him out of that grave and death itself was conquered in that act. And three things about the resurrection really quick is that it means, first of all, that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is not just a prophet. He's also the Messiah. And Jesus is the man for the future and from the future. And what I, I don't, I'm not talking about time travel here. But what I'm saying is resurrection is an event that belongs in the future. It doesn't belong here now. It's a kingdom event. But it happened to him early. He's already resurrected. He's already up. He's already in his resurrection body. We're not just talking about somebody that came back to life and then died again. We're talking about somebody that passed through death out the other side into the life of the age to come. And so, Jesus is the man who is also the Messiah. Because who else could he be if he's already experienced a resurrection? Number two, it's the defeat of evil. Colossians 2 says that Jesus triumphed over it. He triumphed over those evil forces, those principalities and powers. Whether spiritual or human or both or all three, if you want to put in the religious powers as well. And the other thing the resurrection means is that we too will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says that He is the first fruits, And therefore it says when He comes, we too will be raised. So it's like we've already seen what's going to happen in the future, which gives us great confidence that the power of death has been done away in Jesus Christ. And then we get to this exciting thing, which is called the Holy Spirit, right? And the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. And it is this awesome, intense fire of God that shoots out flames. And somebody speaks in a foreign language they never even knew before. Somebody else heals a lame person. And it's this untamable fire of God that enables Peter to have incredible boldness on the day of Pentecost. And it also empowers the people to live like Jesus, to live the age to come now. The lifestyle of the age to come is available to live now because the Holy Spirit is already here now. And so we are empowered by the Spirit to have the fruit of the Spirit that is recorded in Galatians 5. So there are some effects to this believing in the gospel. Some of the effects is that we are given a bright future. Second Timothy 1.10 says that life and immortality were brought to light through the gospel. That's the other thing about the kingdom of God. Is that those who enter the kingdom of God by resurrection when Jesus returns will never die again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. They will never die again. That's immortality. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, it says, If you believe the gospel that old things have passed away, all things have become new, you are a new creation in, in Christ. And that means that you have a whole new way of life. Everything has changed. And in Romans 6.4, it talks about it's like a death. It's like you died. 
and now you are resurrected to walk in newness of life. So it's not just belief, it's also practices. You can't separate one from the other. And so I came across this scholar named Walter Brueggemann. I just wanted to share with you something of his. That's kind of washed out. Um, but he's got the, you know, Martin Luther, not yet, Dave. Uh, he's got these 19 theses. Okay, Martin Luther uh, had 95 theses on, uh, in 1517 when he took, you know. He's only got 19, and uh, I'm not doing that, am I? Oh, okay, you're fixing it, making it look good. Thank you. It's great to have people like Richard here. Whoa, yeah. Uh, I just found a picture of him, okay? Don't get too weirded out. But um, he's a professor of Old Testament at Columbia Theological Seminary in Georgia, and he was a teacher of one of my teachers. He was a teacher of Dr. Joe Martin, uh, who also is an Old Testament uh, specialist uh, at the Atlanta Bible College. But he shares uh, his... I only took the first nine of his 19 theses, and I just want you to think about it for a second. There might be some words you don't understand or some ideas, but we'll unpack it in just a second. These are 19 theses. It doesn't matter that you get them. It doesn't matter that there are 19. Nothing, nothing of that really matters. But I'll name them as I go. First, these are convictions I have. First, that everybody lives by a script the script may be implicit or explicit, may be recognized or unrecognized, but everybody has a script. Second, we get scripted, all of us get scripted through the process of nurture and formation and socialization, and it happens to us without our knowing it. Third, that the dominant scripting in our society is a script of technological, therapeutic, consumer militarism that socializes us all, liberal and conservative. I worked really hard on those four words, technological, therapeutic, military, consumerism. Fourth, that script enacted through advertising and propaganda and ideology, especially on the liturgies of television, promises to make us safe and to make us happy. Fifth, that script has failed. Every time John Kerry and George Bush open their mouth, it's clear that it has failed that the script of military consumerism cannot make us safe and it cannot make us happy. We may be the unhappiest society in the world. Sixth. Oh, that not coming through? All right. <laughs> His mic was like far away. Sixth, that health for our society depends on disengagement from and relinquishment of that script of military consumerism. This is a disengagement and a relinquishment that we mostly resist and about which we are profoundly ambiguous. Seventh, it is the task of ministry to de-script that script among us, that is, to enable persons to relinquish 
a world that no longer exists and indeed never did exist. Eight, the task of descripting relinquishment and disengagement is accomplished by a steady, patient, intentional articulation of an alternative script that we say can make us happy and make us safe. Ninth, the alternative script is rooted in the Bible and is enacted through the tradition of the church. It is an offer of a counter-meta-narrative, counter to the script of technological, therapeutic, military consumerism. All right. So he's working on this idea. So we want to think for a little while here. Uh, he's working on this idea of a script, and so this teaching is titled, What is Your Script? And so I was thinking about the scripts. I've written scripts, which uh, are computer programs, right, Matt? You're coming us back there. Uh, I wrote a script once that compared two Bible references to see which one was before the other. And uh, Jim Winchester probably knows about scripts, too. Uh, and, uh, you know, these things are programs, and they tell the computer what to do. And scripts are also what they use for movies, right, to tell which actors what to do and stuff like that. And scripts are also like stories that inform us. And so I was thinking, what are, some of the, what are some of the scripting that we get from our society? And I was thinking about movies, right? And I, I stumbled upon this particular genre of movies that I thought was just so fascinating. I didn't get to see this one, but I think it was Will Smith, wasn't it? Yeah. Zombies take over the earth and kill everybody or something like that. And he's like the last one he has got to save everybody. Deep Impact. It's an older movie. A comet is on target to hit the earth. The world's going to end, and the guy's got to go up there and save the day. The core. Oh, man, this time the core has stopped spinning, and the earth is about to be torn apart. We need to take a journey to the middle of the earth, right? Armageddon. That was a blockbuster, right? An asteroid is heading for earth. The day after tomorrow, talk about global warming. It's the global freeze, right? Climate change and everything freezes over. Independence Day, that was a huge uh, seller, right? Aliens in the earth, right? They come and they invade and they conquer the earth. And then one act of heroism, he flies the plane into the laser beam and kills the bad guys. The Matrix, machines have taken over the earth and used humans for batteries. <laughs> War of the Worlds, aliens take over the earth again and try to kill everyone. Crimson Tide, it's Gene Hackman and uh, Denzel. Washington. Nuclear war is about to happen, starting with a submarine that has no communication with the outside. I'm getting to Terminator. War games. A kid hacks into a computer and nearly starts a nuclear war. The sum of all fears. A bomb goes off at a baseball game or something and almost starts World War III. Terminator 2, which I just saw the preview for. Robots are taking over the world. <laughs> Transformers 2, just saw the preview for that one. Robots are taking over the world. Again. And you have the, so, and you know, there's lots of other genres of movies. It's just, this one is, is these seem to be like the big, huge sellers, right? That are just, everybody buys them. And do you notice the theme in all those movies? Ah, the world's coming to an end, you know, and everybody's gonna die. It's gonna be terrible. We need a hero. News stories The Avian Flu. The swine flu, economies crashing, planes are crashing, global warming, tsunami, earthquakes, hurricanes, 
terrorist attacks. These are just some of the news stories that we hear. And you ever notice that on the news, it's not like they just report it. It's like, I'm now with the brother who knows this person who knows this other person whose bus driver used to be in that plane. And he says his favorite color is blue. Yes, we have... Yes, we have confirmation. It is blue. You know, they obsess on these stories as if, as if there's like... I mean, and a lot of them are tragedies. And I'm not saying these things aren't true. I'm just saying these are some of the dominant themes in our culture right now. And, you know, you could probably think of other ones that I didn't think of. Here's some advertising scripts. You deserve some chocolate. You've had a hard day of work. You got home. It's time to open up a nice piece of chocolate candy and put it on a bowl of ice cream and eat it. You, because you ate the chocolate, need to be on a diet. And this new diet is guaranteed for 30 days or your money back to work. You need extra strength medicine. Where's our pharmacist friends? Are they here? They're online. Okay, well, they, they would relate to this, right? There's no normal strength medicine. It's all extra strength, you know what I mean? And you have to take two. I don't know what, and you, you ever see those commercials, you watch the side effects, you're like, oh. <laughs> Buy our doohickey, it will make you cool. <laughs> Buy this car, you will be safe. That's for like the all-wheel drive, steel-reinforced cars. And then the, for the other people, buy this car, you will have sex appeal. This is the convertible that your head's actually above the windshield a little bit. So if it flipped over, it would be certain death, right? <laughs> Chew this gum and you'll have white teeth. Eat this cereal and you'll live forever. <laughs> Take this depression medication and you'll be happy. The government tells us we need to make the world safe for democracy. We need to stop the communists. We need to stop the terrorists. If we just conquer this nation, then we'll be safe. Blind patriotic allegiance. Just my country right or wrong. Myth of divine origin along with God's blessing on all decisions. Look, God gave us this country. Therefore, whatever it decides, we, you know, we have to endorse demonization of the enemy. They're satanic Muslims, you know, and you just uh, dehumanize them. Spend money on tax returns. Take your tax returns and spend it on something that you can't quite afford on a long payment plan. <laughs> Peace and safety. And this is not unique to the United States. You know, all governments are sort of like after the same thing. They're after our uh, undivided allegiance, of course. And peace and safety was a, a political slogan in the Roman Empire and Paul the Apostle says in Thessalonians, just when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Right? Don't buy it. TV shows. It's n these are some of the scripts that they script you. It's normal to live and sleep with people you're not married to. The issue is not, is, that, is it okay to sleep with people you're not married to? The issue is, which one should I sleep with tonight? That's the issue that, that you know, these people are really working at on these shows. Uh, some other TV shows. Men are buffoons incapable of leading their homes. That would be like The Simpsons, right? Homer Simpson. Women should use their sex appeal to get ahead in life. Technology will save us by helping us to solve unsolvable crimes and cure incurable medical problems. That and the old logic in the, in the brain, and, you know, we, we're going to be okay. We'll solve all these problems. But ladies and gentlemen, what does the gospel tell us? Is the gospel pessimistic? Does the gospel say, the world's ending and we're all going to die and there's nothing we can do about it because we're not in the CIA or because we're not number one at the best college in the world and we're not a computer hacker. You know, the gospel says, 
I'm hopeful. I know the end of the world's coming, and it's going to be good. (laughs) That's totally strange. You know that, right? Motivated by love and not fear. So many of the scripts of our world motivate us to act out of fear rather than out of love and uh, faith and trust. And it's characterized by abundance. The gospel is characterized by abundance, not scarcity. You don't have to hoard everything yourself and keep your little morsel of bread. You know, the gospel calls us to be abundant and to share and be generous. And it's an anchor in tough times. It gets us through when, it, when bad things happen. Gives us lasting purpose rather than creating our own little fleeting purposes. It makes sense of morals rather than merely creating these little social rules to be followed and then we disobey them and go to jail. When you believe in the gospel, when you believe that Jesus is coming to make the world right, lying just doesn't make sense. You don't have to go into a whole long thing about how every reason why. It's just like, it just doesn't make sense with who I am as a person who believes in the gospel of the kingdom. So here are some some questions I wanted you to ask yourself. We're just wrapping up now. Uh, What are your driving forces? What do you think about a lot? What do you feel about your past? Do you feel a sense of purpose for your life? What do you spend your time doing? What do you bring into your mind? What are your inputs that you're feeding yourself on? What do you do for fun? What do you spend your money on? And how do you feel about the future? And how much does faith impact your overall life? Just some questions to think about. Because all of us are in a process. And we have these different scripts running our program. And some of the things we're very conscious of. We realize that God's a God of deliverance. Therefore, we need not fear when the bad news comes. We can go to the people of faith, pray together, and get healing and get through it. And other scripts, we don't even realize that we believe. So... As we go on, the idea is to read the Bible and to descript those scripts among us. I just had a few things written down by way of conclusion. We are the resurrection people. Amen? We are the spirit people. We're the people who believe that we have received the Holy Spirit. We are the kingdom people. We are the future of humanity. That's a little scary, but it's true. It's true. We are the future of humanity. We are what the world will be like when Jesus comes because we will be the people populating the world and all those who believe this gospel and live it. Those who God has redeemed in advance for his global redemption project. We are privileged and commissioned to give the world a foretaste of the kingdom. That's what Jesus did. And I think that's what we're called to do. And we, and, you know, the world has its scripts. It has its things. And we've got ours. And the idea is that we have this prophetic role to play in bringing this message to a world that is numb, consumeristic, obsessed with sexuality, terrified of extinction, generally overbusy, underpaid, and bored, and whatever else the world is. They need this message of salvation just as much as we need it. We were in the world before we believed and repented and began to live the way of Jesus. So the gospel is what I've dedicated to my life, my life to, is why I stand here. Because it makes sense, because God can be trusted, because Jesus is coming back. And I really believe that. And it's really important for all of us that we would not just believe everything that I say or anybody else says. Because we've been wrong. I've been wrong. And the best thing I think for us to do is to think on our own. 
with God's help in reading the Bible. I mean, seriously, if you believe that the Bible is the revelation that God's given us, we should read it when we sit down, when we stand up, early in the morning, late in the night. You know, it should be our passion is to read this book and to come to understand what God has for us in here. Because as, as a minister, I am going to be held responsible for what I say from up here. And I realize that. And that's, that's a little scary. But you are also responsible for yourself on the last day. It's not like you'd be like, yeah, they ordained this minister and he told me the script thing and, you know, so I killed somebody. You know, it's not like God's going to... It's not like God's going to be like, okay, you can come in, but your minister's out. You know what I mean? I mean, he's going to hold me accountable for what I say. But you are responsible for your own destiny. So my lasting encouragement to you is this idea of reading the Bible. The gospel is something that causes forgiveness of sin. But not only that, it's something to be believed. But not only that, it's something to be shared with others. And it's not only that, but it's something that brings hope into your life. But it also calls you to change how we see God, ourselves, others, and the world. And last of all, it calls us to embody the kingdom now by following the way of Jesus. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for giving us an opportunity to spend some time thinking about this script. That you made the world good, that you're in the process of redeeming the world, and that one day when your son returns, redemption, redemption and restoration will consummate. It will occur in such a way that all the nations will come to you. And there will be peace and justice and equity and love and immortality. And Father, none of us lives out of the gospel enough. Help us to let it go down deeper this seed that has been planted in our hearts. Let those roots go in and let us be changed so that we may closer and closer represent you and your son in this world that is so desperately in need. Father, we thank you for this and commit this day to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you enjoyed what you heard here, why not give Restitutio a five-star rating in iTunes or Stitcher? Doing so will help others find this podcast and inspire them to love God, follow Christ, and seek truth wherever it leads. Thanks for listening, and check us out online at restitutio.org, where you can find an archive of all the podcasts, as well as a bunch of articles and links to other resources. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.